0: To on focus brought to you by the focal therapy clinic where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known less understood often avoided and even ignored prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the uk and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities i'm claire delmar joining me today is gp and men's health specialist dr jeff foster author of Man Alive, in which he examines the most commonly misunderstood aspects of men's health. His expertise on testosterone deficiency, erectile dysfunction, prostate health, cardiovascular disease, and nutrition and wellness has been shared widely through media and applied in his clinical practice. Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for coming today and welcome to On Focus. Thank you very much for having me. One of the things that introduced me to you was obviously your book, which we can talk a little bit about later, but you recently had a piece in the Times, which got a lot of attention, where you talked about screening for prostate health and screening for prostate cancer specifically. And I wanted to just sort of start off on that and ask what your observations have been over the last 18 months during the pandemic on screening for prostate cancer and, you know, why you think this is important, what's changed and what do you think men can anticipate going forward?
1: Yeah, sure. So, at the initial start of the pandemic, the uptake in all forms of screening and in fact almost all primary healthcare just stopped almost dead to the point where it would probably be the first time since I qualified that we had clinics and you would have space and there was time and no one actually came in asking a question. And this lasted for the initial period where everything stayed very calm and then of course there's a degree of acceptance and understanding about what was happening and then gradually people's health needs, health anxieties started to uh, bubble back up again and now we're seeing the opposite and it's the rebound effect because Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. in a lot of these scenarios the end result in terms of patient user demand works out the same except we've got a big gap where nothing happened yeah. So suddenly we now trying to cram all that stuff back into the same amount of working day, which means obviously it's a big challenge to do.
0: And how does that play out with screening for prostate cancer and specifically around PSA testing?
1: The big thing for PSA testing from my perspective is that it's how you use the PSA that's important. and. We regularly, when I would say our practice has just short of 16,000 patients in the NHS practice, we would have maybe one or two patients a week who would just request to have a PSA test. They wouldn't necessarily want to see a doctor discuss that, but would just send an an e-consult or a medication request and on that would say, can I just book for a PSA test?
0: Okay.
1: These are not the same guys that have symptoms and these are not the same guys that are already under urology or may have other urological problems. But just that understanding that some people know about PSA, they've heard of it and they think, I just want it tested. The problem that we have is that obviously you then say to your patient, well, the PSA is not a widely accepted national screening tool for all forms of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't work that well. But on the other hand, you also say to them, but but on the other hand, it's it's the best we've got for now. So you have to have this middle ground. You have to really counsel every patient to say, what is your risk? What is your age group? What is your expected level of PSA? And then you can start to give them a bit of informed choice about what they want to do with that test and whether it's going to be useful. And even if they do have it, what do you do with that result in maybe six months, a year, five years time?
0: But you made a comment a minute ago about, you know, what's your expected PSA? I think that's how you phrased it. I mean, do you see a point where every man should have a baseline PSA and then they maybe eventually begin to self-track?
1: A single PSA by itself, I would consider to be useless. And obviously, as part of the book, we spoke to several urologists about this. And there is so much discussion around when and at what point we should start looking at people's PSAs. I think a PSA is very useful if it's initially screened properly and then it's used cumulatively. And the whole thing about medicine now is we are moving away from subjective feelings and symptoms of disease, and we're looking to gain as much objective data as possible, and mm. patients want to see their PSAs. And if you can say, I've got a guy's PSA every six months for five years, then that's useful data, and you can mm-hmm. do something with that.
0: Yeah, but I guess that's what I meant when I suggested you know, self-monitoring or self-tracking. I mean, the, you know, do you foresee a point where you know, maybe you have your initial baseline done through a GP like yourself, but then you are able to monitor regularly whatever period that regularity is do you, do you see that as something in the future
1: probably not to be honest purely because again there are too many variables around the local labs and what their PSA might be
0: that's how interesting. you reliably
1: yeah. get your patient to get a PSA from they won't be getting if they're not getting it from primary care where are they getting their PSA from who's responsible yeah. for that test if it comes yeah. back out normal if you didn't order it
0: yeah indeed I mean, really
1: is yeah. there anything better than a PSA you could use that might fulfill
0: that gap? Well, I'm going to come on to that, that you've, you've raised a really interesting point And I, I'm going to come on to that. But but again, you use the word variability. And, and that's something that um, you know we've been looking at a lot because we hear about it so much from our patients who, again, you talk about data. You know, We can track patients who have had such variable experiences across the NHS, whether it's from different parts of the country. And, and I guess that's something that I wanted to explore a little bit with you, that this variability in both the screening and then the diagnostic pathway that follows. You know, how do you think this can be addressed in the you know, sort of medium term and, and ultimately in the longer term? Because it can't stay that way if one person gets tested one way and has a different type of biopsy or a different type of imaging or you know, a different type of treatment. How do you see that playing out?
1: The inherent problem with the pathway is the PSA itself. So mm-hmm. if you were to compare it, for example, with breast screening, patient has a mammogram based on that result it then goes to a specialist who will then review patient scene follow-up processes very very clear Mm -hmm. and their operating procedures are so well established you can apply them to a national accepted screening process Mm -hmm. if you have a test like a PSA Mm -hmm. which no one really agrees what use it really is then you can't apply a very well regulated process to go with it. It's rough processes, and you know, the NICE guidance under the two-week criteria still fits, and if you've got some enormous PSA, you can just refer your patient. But of course, there's so many variables around that, the means mm-hmm. like, everyone gets referred, and some hospitals will run the results of those PSAs differently to others.
0: So now I do want to come back to your point you made earlier about you know, the PSA being the, the best we have, I think, is, is how you expressed it. You know, amid this kind of controversy, We've actually begun to see a new approach in imaging that's emerging that that could be used for screening. And in fact, again, you mentioned mammogram is, is already being compared to a mammogram. In fact, it's being called the prostogram. Do you see a role for this in primary care in future?
1: If you could devise a screening test that was cheap, reliable, and minimally invasive, and you could get men to engage with that then it would easily surpass the PSA mm. and if you could have a national screening prostogram service or something similar comparable to cervical screening or comparable to breast screening and it allowed men to be walking in for a quick image which was non-invasive had a very good pickup rate and was relatively cheap to do then man we could get rid of PSA as a screening tool in primary care completely
0: Mm-hmm. are you familiar with the prostogram? and in its current form it's still being trialed
1: yeah and the problems with it at the minute would be that cost is too prohibitive you couldn't use that as a gp referral source because everything we have to do has to be justifiable in primary care it's a very odd scenario whereas if you're a hospital doc and you work in that hospital for the majority sort of 99 percent of stuff you mm-hmm. can just test for it if you need it there's no look at the budget. Whereas in primary care, you are budgeted on everything you do. And if you over investigate, you are penalized for it.
0: Hmm. Okay, interesting. Gosh, I could talk about this one for a while, but I, but I won't. I, I want to come back to, again, something you referred to earlier, which was around data. There's been a lot of discussion around how the NHS is using patient data and, and particularly GP records. What are your views on this and, and how do you see the NHS data being used to, to support and advance men's health?
1: It's all about what you feel you want your data to be used for and what understanding you have In terms of what your data offers. So, to sort of clarify what I mean, is a lot of you are very fearful of giving their NHS data out as if, in some way, this is going to impact on their ability to function in life, as if, in some way, this is personalized stuff that we don't want Big Brother to know, that all this sort of thing is very hidden. Whereas, actually, what we're finding more so as we move to the electronic system of prescribing and hospital sharing of notes is that actually, data in the NHS is not particularly well protected anyway and it is shared amongst various groups within the NHS quite freely if you then say you want to sell it on to third parties well of course that has to be with the explicit consent of the patient Mm -hmm. because then you're moving you're crossing that boundary from what is NHS agreed and when you signed up to this you agreed to do that Mm -hmm. to say well actually you know I might have per Virgin, Nuffield, any secondary company might decide actually they've got your data and they might be able to advertise something to you. Now mm-hmm. if this is a way that the NHS could fund its shortfall then perhaps people might agree and they might see this is a very easy way of plugging a financial gap that's badly required. Mm-hmm. On the other hand people are also very protective of the NHS and the NHS data and they feel that their health records are very personal to them. So I think you probably could do it and you probably could do it quite successfully, but I think the way it's been done, almost surreptitiously and with a lot of behind closed doors sort of feel behind it, has meant that for many patients, it has not been a very positive experience into data
0: sharing. I mean, which is such a shame, you know, if we could square this circle, because as you said, you know it's potentially plugs a financial shortfall but also as we've seen during the pandemic when clinical trials themselves were being compromised data has become the way we actually do our studies and, and look at how we actually will advance various problems in healthcare i mean so you know you've got this resource but somehow it's it's kind of stuck
1: yes i totally agree and the bigger issues around this are that firstly data in the nhs is not linked so for example, patients always imagine that the hospital guys can see what we write in our electronic notes, which they can't, and the hospital also imagine that uh, the district nurses can see what I write in the notes, but they can't. And mm. this kind of separated piles of data, the amount of information out of there is just unbelievable. Yeah. And if it was more readily available, the difficulties behind research would be surmounted so much more easily.
0: Well, again, this is something that's gonna, I think, plow on and on. Um, and I guess at the end of the summer, we'll we'll see what kind of decision yeah. it gets made on that. So, just to close out, pull this back down to the patient level, so to speak. And um, you know that that Times article that I referenced earlier was 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 quite popular. And um, I'm really interested to say to hear what you have to say about how you would advise men, you know, at certain benchmarks, 40, 50, 60 and what the top thing they could do in managing their prostate health? I
1: think the best thing you can do is don't just focus on your prostate and to focus on any gland, any organ, any specific item in your body is the route to failure. Because if you are truly interested in men's health and you're interested in your own body and you're interested in getting better quality of life, then you want to focus on your entire self, this holistic idea. So, you would always say to every patient when you're 40, 50 and 60, you want to get a full blown health check and you want to look for everything that you can try and look for in terms of disease risk profiling. The reason that's important in terms of looking at prostate health is because it has ramifications. So if, for example, you pick up one form of disease that may have implications on your overall prostate disease or prostate cancer risk. For example, there's, there's tenuous evidence or well, maybe not tenuous, slightly better evidence to suggest that, Vitamin D supplementation could reduce your risk of prostate cancer. But people don't make that connection, especially if they're thinking, crikey, I need to look after my urinary flow or just to get a PSA test. But if you look at it as a wider picture, there's lots of stuff you can do to improve your overall prostate health. So MOT is your first thing. Get a health check every Mm. decade or even even more frequently if you're able to. Mm. Um, I think the NHS ones are very good in terms of the financial restrictions that we have. We can only screen you for the most common things, the diabetes, the heart disease. We can't really screen you for prostate cancer. We can't look at the risk factors behind that. And I think after you've done your screening, the other things you need to look for, what are those elements of my life that I could improve that would decrease my overall prostate disease risk? And if you think of prostate cancer, I mean, yes, it's, it's obviously incredibly common for men, but it's just another cancer. And if you could think to yourself, well, what do I need to do to remove my, or reduce my overall cancer risk? Well, there is very good evidence that for prostate cancer and others, if you're just more overweight, that's going to increase your prostate cancer risk. If you don't exercise enough, that increases your cancer risk. Interestingly, large amounts of calcium, which do seem to be more an isolated risk to prostate cancer than um, most others. But we're talking pretty excessive amounts, you know, if you're neck and milk every day. Mm. Um, eating a healthy diet is the most banal and what usually we would say is unhelpful phrase to people. You should eat a healthy diet because we Mm -hmm. say it to everybody and you can make TV programs out of it. But it really does work. And the sad thing is that it really decreases prostate cancer risks. If you can effectively keep your overall body healthy by not being overweight, by exercising lots and eating a healthy diet, those are the best things you can do to remove prostate cancer risk.
0: Well, good advice. Well, on that note, um, I think we're going to close out. I want to say thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, It's been a pleasure for me, and I know our listeners will find this um, extremely helpful. So thanks for joining me, Dr. Jeff. Thank you. Links to Dr. Jeff's book, website, and media pieces are available on the program notes. Further information on prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment is available on our website, along with a transcript of this interview and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.